Canine Detection Collaborative, a detection dog training trio with Stacy Barnett. Hi. Robin Grubel. Hey there. And Crystal Wing. What's up? With humor and a big dose of theory, our trio talks practical training advice and features interviews with top trainers and scientists. It's Canine Detection Collaborative! Hi, this is Stacy Barnett from Canine Detection Collaborative, and I am here with uh, Robin Grubel. Hello. And we're here with Crystal Wing, who, by the way, is having like severe allergies. So just a heads up, Robin and I are going to be doing most of the talking. We're trying to give Crystal a break. So Crystal, just say hi. No, you'll... Hi, everybody. Sorry that I sound like a frog. <laughs> yeah, see, that's why That's yeah, why we're poor, not going to make her. Right. Poor Crystal taught all day and had yeah. to talk all day. And then we're making her get on and record a podcast. So she's here, but we're not going to actually make her make many noises because it's just, it hurts us to think about what that feels like. And then poor Robin's on the phone. Oh, yeah. And and then we have the whole hello internet. Yeah. So... Uh, living out in the middle of the nowhere on a farm, sometimes your internet does not work correctly. Exactly. So anyway, but we still want to have this podcast, which is actually kind of a cool topic. We did this last year and we decided to do this again this year where I think it's the official date for Ask a Stupid Question Day is, I think, is it September 28th? Not that it's like an official holiday or anything, but it is kind of a cool idea. And to kind of celebrate, <laughs> I guess, if, if you will, the idea of ask a stupid question, which by the way, there is no such thing as a stupid question. We decided to ask you all, all of our wonderful listeners, for your questions. And then we're going to basically just talk about them. I don't know if we can answer every one of them or or even to the point that, that you guys would consider them answered because you know us. But that is the intent of today. So I will read question one. Yep. Okay. So how do you guys manage to do everything with you, you do and still train your own dogs? I will answer that first. Yep. For me, it is literally about prioritization. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear us hear me talk about a little in a couple episodes, maintaining that mental attitude on how to train. And some of it is I'm at the point where I'm training four or five dogs a day. Not every dog gets trained every day. Mm -hmm. But I have to do that because for my mental management and to be able to do all the rest of the stuff. So it's prioritization and time management. Yeah. And for me, it's kind of having the opportunity to be self-employed in a job that (laughs) includes my own dogs, it makes things a whole lot easier. And what I have done, I mean, because I being self-employed, but I also, I teach mostly virtually. So I have the opportunity to be able to flex my schedule any way that I really would like to to flex it um, within reason. And I've made a priority. It goes back to priorities, just like you were talking about, Robin, of prioritizing my dogs because it's important that they are well-trained. It's a part of my business. And if I felt like if I didn't actually carve out time for them, I would be from a business perspective, right? Kind of neglecting a piece of my business. Plus, it makes me feel really good. And um, Robin and Crystal kind of got to see how I am like when I don't train my dogs. And they thought I had been replaced with like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 
So now I'm back to training my dogs and they're like, we like you again. So it's it's, it's, better. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's essential to my mental health. So for training my dogs, it's not only prioritization because it's important for what I do. It's also important for me from a mental perspective. And I, I feel like it's it just has to get prioritized. Right. So for me, it's the number one thing I look forward to. So I mean, when club says we can't train today or we're not going to be able to meet, that's like the worst news ever. So that's how I do it because I need to. Um, it's kind of like being an artist. I have to create. If I don't, then there's just something not fulfilled. And then also my dogs need to be trained. So there's a lot of needs there. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you need some tea with honey in it, a little bit of honey, I think. And oh, I feel so yeah. sweet for you. Oh, I know. <sighs> yeah. So the next question is Crystal is an art teacher with higher energy dogs. What does she do with the dogs while she is at work all day? This person asking the question is a teacher and wants to get a dog in a few, or few years that has higher energy and need to make sure that she has plans. And so I can, Crystal, answer this for you. I think anybody who manages high drive dogs who has an eight hour or 10 hour a day job, I know Crystal's dogs are kenneled outside or crated inside if the weather isn't too bad. And they're crated for that entire time. If the weather permits, they might go to work and hang out in her van. As puppies, that's exactly what my dogs, when I had a corporate job, my puppy would come to work with me and it would hang out in my van. I had it set up so that at that point I had a Toyota Highlander. I would go out as my meetings allowed every two hours, take my puppy out potty and put it back in the car and and be done. So that's how I would do crate training. And then just like Crystal was saying, with that eight to 10 hour a day job, because you have to include commute time, right? That's what I would do every evening is I was either walking my dogs or training my dogs or making sure they had a good way to expend all of that energy in productive fashion. So it comes down to a lot of Time management. I mean, I think back now to when I had a eight to five corporate job that I was traveling one hour on either side. So I was had I was gone for ten hours at a time. I set it up so that my dogs had inside outside kennels so they could go out and go to the bathroom. And then when I get home at six o'clock at night. Every night, I was either taking the dogs for an active walk or we were doing active training. And then we would do weekend warrior stuff to make sure that they had their needs met. It was exhausting and would make for long days. So Crystal said that if you want to check out the answer online, she also included pictures of her indoor-outdoor kennels that you can check out. And it's on Facebook. I think that question was actually on the collaborative page. And so make sure to check out the big post. So Stacey, did you want to throw anything in there? No. Okay. (laughs) No, as far as just living with high energy dogs, it takes planning. I just... uh, So I guess the answer isn't no. I guess the answer is sure. It takes a little bit of planning. And it's not... I mean, sometimes you do have those days. Like I had the day yesterday because I had a webinar and I'm one of these like, I can't do anything unless it's last minute. It's just the way my brain works. So I was literally on the computer 
all day tomorrow, uh, yesterday, um, getting ripped because the webinar was there. And the dogs were like, what are we doing today? And I'm looking at them and I'm like, we're napping or you're napping. I'm not napping, but you need to nap now. And they were definitely a little bit restless, but some days it's that's just what has to happen. And that's life. And on other days, they get to train, you know, most of the day. So it just depends. It just depends. Yeah. Yep. All right. If you could do any dog sport you've never trained in before, what would it be? Hypothetically, you win the lottery, so time and money isn't a limiting factor. That's a tough one. Can I say hunt test? Actually, I would say field trials. I've never yeah. trained for field trials. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm train I'm dabbling in training it right now, but if I could hire somebody to operate the foundation and I turn into a consulting role and take all of my time and go do something and travel and go to Texas or Florida for the winter and train for field trials, that's what I do. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say that, I mean, I've done a lot of sports. And so that's kind of, that's a tough question to answer because I've trained a lot of them. I haven't trained in depth in a lot of them. I'm also starting to dip my toe into ARSA, right? Which is that which is like the search and rescue sport. And I'm getting really excited about that because I'm loving the obedience part of it, which I, I just shock a to me. The dexterity, my dogs are loving that. Well, I'm really loving that too, because we're going a little crazy with that too. And you know, we haven't started the live find portion, but I think for me, like that's it's a lot of fun just branching out into something, something new. I mean, there's a lot of dog sports I admire that I haven't tried, but I think it's all about if you see something that that you want to try, try it. I think. And, yeah. yeah, Crystal said she would like to do sled dog stuff. She wants to be on a sled behind a really fast team one time. That sounds cool. That's a little bit too much. That sounds cold and it sounds, sounds scary. Cool. I might die. Erin <laughs> <laughs> Lyons and the Labrador breeder, right up in British Columbia, has. She does sledding with her Labradors. So that's so I've heard border collie crosses are some of the, are really popular with that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she's literally got her Labradors, you know, doing like full yeah. full sledding. So I know by that. I mean you, Burr. Yeah, Burr. kind of how I felt about it. I mean, I don't live in Canada yeah. for a reason because it's kind of cold up there. So Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Next question. Does it affect your dog's scent working? sourcing ability if their whiskers are shaven? So I looked this one up because I don't know. And it said that shaving a dog's whiskers, is called their vibrissi, can potentially affect their nose work abilities because it has to do with their sensory perception. And what they're known for is they can sense changes in air currents and that could help with detecting scents. But I talked to my friend who is a master groomer here in town and she said, she's a poodle expert. And she's like, if you don't shave their faces, you're going to have a mess. And so you have to think about the comfort of the dog. And a lot of the poodles that she works with are also competitors in nose work. And she said, anecdotally, they've never seen a difference in any of those dogs. Yeah. And I, I can kind of speak to that as well. Having, of course, you know, I have a, a one example, but so Joey, I just know that he had a very difficult time sourcing when his face was furry. 
And he seemed to actually work better when he has shaved face. And a lot of it could actually be the fact that he was just more comfortable. It really, they're more comfortable when they're clean. I think it could even be just that. I mean, I think regardless of the physics part of it, but just it's anecdotal, but I definitely think he did better with a shaved face personally. So just so you guys know, Crystal is providing us stuff in the background for <laughs> as information <laughs> because he sounds like a frog. Yes. So one of the things she she just posted is that whiskers are highly sensitive to touch and vibrations, allowing dogs to gather information about texture, shape, and location of objects. Shaving them can diminish the sensory input, making it more challenging for the dog to gather precise information. And there are certain, you know, Europe, you, you aren't allowed to shave whiskers. Yeah, in some parts of Europe. In but- some parts of Europe. But if you look at a poodle, though, it's like it's not just the whiskers. It's because the way their their hair on their face grows, it just is growing like the hair on their head. And the whiskers are intertwined in that. And honestly, I have a feeling I don't even know if the whiskers are straight or curly. They may even be curly for all I know. I don't really know because they shave, which is really kind of an interesting question. So, you know what? Actually, if we have any listeners in Europe and Germany, yeah. In particular, who have bands on shaving whiskers. Does that include dogs that naturally get groomed that way? Yeah. That would be a good... So that's my stupid question back to all of our listeners for somebody if they would like to comment on that. When no. We'd love to know. <laughs> I have noticed, and again, this is also anecdotal, but I've watched a lot of different breeds search. And I have seen some dogs that, with a very furry faces, like maybe they have like beards and it's part of their their breed standard. They actually seem to have to go through another like layer of training to understand how to source. And I I have seen a difference. It's almost like they have to work extra hard. And again, maybe what I'm seeing may not agree exactly with the whole whiskers thing, but like the whole beard. I've seen that they actually seem to have to work a little harder to source. And I'm talking like the giant schnauzers and, and stuff like that. They can definitely do it, but it seems like they have to go through like this next like step in, in their training to try to make sure that they can figure it out. And again, that's just yeah. observation of a lot of dogs. A lot of dogs. Okay. Yep. Next question. If you use a trained final response like a down or a sit, how do dogs indicate a high hide example where their nose, to get their nose near source if they sit on their hind legs? Okay. So I'll take this question. Yep. Because this is where I live. So typically what happens is if you think about it this way, the cue to do their trained final response is their nose has gotten as close to source as possible. Right. So this is one of the things where as the dog stands up on their hind legs, stretches all the way up to get their nose as close to source as possible, where the nose nose work people Mm -hmm. would call alert as yeah. the dog is fully stretched, like almost pointing up at the hide, mm-hmm. my dogs will go up fully source all the way up, get their noses close to source, then drop down into their sitter, they're down. Right. So the sitter down happens after. Yeah. After the stretch. Yeah. And so then it's my job as the handler to be able to know, okay, source is actually a high hide. Because I saw them do the change of behavior and then the cue is to do the trained final response, which is the thing. 
Yeah. So or down. So that's how that actually happens. Mm-hmm. And typically, what also tells you with the high hide is the dog's. I mean, body language stuff. Yeah. They'll they'll present it. So yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the the final response when you start thinking about that the communication that happens, the trained final response is such a it, like a small sliver of the information that they're yeah. giving you anyway. That that you really should have all that information. I mean. It's really, I think it's helpful for people in general if they want to think about training their eye is try to see if you can figure out when the dog gets to the hide before the dog consciously does any sort of communication or with the handler. And if you can kind of figure that out ahead of time, then you're really starting to learn to read your dog. And that would come before any of your, your trained phone response or any of that. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So next question. This is probably a me question. Yep. Pros and cons for having a dog trained on dual scent. So this person is saying many have either a live find or an HRD, but some people have both. Right. Is there a practice, best practice or pros and cons of single versus dual scent trained canine? So in, okay, Crystal has actually written out a response. And so I'm going to read hers and probably verbally annotate it as I go through. So Crystal says, pros of a single single trained dog, single source trained dog. Dogs trained on a single scent or odor can become highly specialized and proficient in detecting that particular odor and solving those problems. They may achieve a higher level of accuracy and efficiency in their detection work. Training a dog on a single scent or odor is often simpler and can lead to faster, more reliable results because there is less confusion or overlap between the odors or scents. I would agree with all of that, especially if you are going to be training in such, I mean, something like trailing. Trailing in and of itself is really hard and maintaining because if you think about in search and rescue or law enforcement work, if you're doing trailing, if you're doing article search, if you're doing narcotics or explosives, and you're doing person-born type of stuff, you have training requirements for all of those things. How many hours in a day do you have to train? So, And then we'll get into the whole concept in the disaster area. And in my opinion, you have dogs, who you have lifeline dogs. They're our emergency front line. You know what? And the firefighters and the task forces will do a lot more to try and rescue someone out of... There's a sense of urgency to get them unburied. Knowing that there is a deceased person there, we then move on to go find out if there are any more live people, and then we'll come back and we'll do the recovery. So having the ability in the disaster scenario to differentiate between live find and cadaver is really important. So cons, and this is... So not all that was Crystal. Like I should probably make disclaimers of, I just got done reading Crystal's statement. This is me having a tangent. (laughs) 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 Crystal doesn't get all the hate mail if there's hate mail, right? (laughs) So, Bring it. I can take it. Yeah. Crystal's con is there are there is a risk that dual center odor trained dogs may become confused or show less precision when transitioning between live odor, live scent, and HRD detection tasks. 
Handlers must maintain clear and consistent cues to minimize confusion. Dual scent trained dogs may not achieve the same level of specialization or precision in either live scent or HRD detections as a single scent trained dog would. And she also says, but it depends on the handler's objectives and the specific requirements of the K-19. So, and then Crystal says, don't read this out loud. It's really hard to type fast, which I almost read out loud. Oh, yeah. With, with the, uh, yeah, we'd have to put the explicit on there, though. So we're Yeah, gonna, I, I, yeah. I took out the, the bleep that would have been yeah. required. Um, so, and I would agree with her on a con on a lot of this. But it really, it for me, it really does depend on what do you get for wilderness search and rescue teams? What do you get deployed for? And if you're getting deployed for suicidal walkaways, you're getting deployed for lost hunters, you're getting deployed for Alzheimer patient walkaways, you don't know at the end if that person is alive or dead. Now, they might be recently dead. And so... Keep that in mind as you're doing your training that the dog at least needs to be exposed to that type of odor. Now, in my opinion, there, I have them. I'm sure people are shocked. (laughs) There is a difference between an Alzheimer walk away or a suicidal walk away and how a trailing, tracking, or area search dog finds that person either alive or deceased. And a cadaver dog that is used to go do crime scenes or find clandestine graves or, you know, search for that person who has been missing for two weeks. So because, but some search and rescue teams, you don't know if the person that you're going to go find is alive or dead. And so your dogs at least have to be exposed to that. And so the, my answer to is it there's pros and cons is it a good idea some of it actually has to do a lot with the dog and 90 percent with the skill of the trainer can you train the dog to do what you want it to do and maintain that level of training so i have, I have a follow-up question then because i'm just more curious so and this just goes off of you know i know some dogs are extremely averse to the smell of human death. And I accidentally experienced that with a prior dog of my own. When I accidentally searched a crime scene, long story, in Canada, my first time in Canada, and he panicked. And I didn't even know that I was in a place where the guy got shot in the head a week before. I had no idea. And I was doing a nose work search. And my dog like was, I had never seen him react this way before. And it long story short, it was like, I was like, oh my God. So if you had like, for instance, like a live find dog, I mean, I guess it would be helpful to know if your dog is going to panic in the... You should absolutely know that. And that's as I'm getting ready to have another litter of puppies, a lot of my puppy buyers are cadaver dog people. Right. And so that's one of the things that I will do is I will bring in a an appropriate sized out you know i'm not being mm-hmm. bringing in like bloody rags and all sorts of no this yeah is yeah safely contained the puppies can't get anything yeah it's safely contained and just seeing if anybody is like oh my god that's horrible right. because that's a puppy that i would some dogs do have a natural aversion yeah to death and so 
as a search and rescue handler, if you are going to be have a live find dog that might get called to go out and do a search where your person at the end could possibly be dead, you need to know that about your dog. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So yeah, so yeah, it just like kind so, of triggered that thought of I remember that experience with Judd, and I was like, what in the world is going on? And then I found out the next day what had happened. Yeah, for those people that do that who are doing that dual purpose, remember you have to re- maintain training logs for both yeah. both disciplines yeah, and all that sort of stuff. So Interesting. I think that that, yeah, that's, it's a thing. Yeah. So, okay. So I think the next question is probably um, for me for the most yeah. part. Pros and cons of cross-training scent sports, nose work, barn hunt, shed hunt, trailing, tracking, handler discrimination, etc. Obviously different considerations for sport dogs versus professional. I'm talking about sport dogs. Oh, I, I'm all for it. As a matter of fact, let's see. What is Brava on? Brava is on birch, anise, clove, cypress, pine, red thyme, wintergreen. But she's also trialed in Canada. She also has her ratch, which is a rat, a barn hunt champion. She's been trained in shed dog. And she has a master handler discrimination title. I've not yet started tracking, but that is definitely on the list. And now that we're going to be doing ARSA, she's going to be looking for live people as well. I am all for it. I'm like, you know, the thing is, is that our dogs have the ability to search for a lot of different things. And what I can tell you is that when we're talking sports, you're not looking for all of them at one time. So you're not in a situation where we were just talking about where you might if you have a dog on a disaster pile and you don't and they may be exposed to both live human and deceased and and you've got a you know a critical moment where you've got to be able to deploy resources we're not talking about that we're talking about okay we're coming to the to the search this is you're working in nose work or coming to the search it's a bunch of bales you're doing barn hunt right there's context there and we're not combining them right so I don't see any issues as far as that goes. I just think it's a, it's more chance to have fun with your dog. And I just say, and even like Brava, for instance, she's got different cues for handler discrimination and as her nose work for regular searching, she actually searches differently. She searches differently when we're doing handler discrimination because you're, they're searching, she's searching for my odor on a cotton ball or my odor on a Q-tip. She has to search very differently. Um, and what's really interesting is she's certainly not alerting all over my house. So they're very, they can understand the context and, and everything. It's fascinating, really. And if we go to barn hunt, she's just searching for rats. And she has a different alert behavior on when she did barn hunt than she does for nose work. It's completely different alert behavior. So I think getting out and enjoying your dog is more important than worrying about if you are doing too many different scent sports. That's my opinion. I would agree. And that actually kind of goes into the next question yep. of information on training considerations for dogs who both track and do nose work, air scenting versus tracking, and how to possibly account for what challenges may present us as we ask them to hunt differently in these contexts. And what I will tell people is that the dogs have toolboxes, and the more you teach them to trail, to yep. track, to air scent, I don't care what odor you're using, they're going to reach into that toolbox and use whatever tool they can get to get where they want to get as fast as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And 
So that's just the whole thing. Okay, Crystal has an opinion. Mm-hmm. Yay. Crystal also tracks. Okay. Yep. Yes, she does. So here's her opinion. So I'm going to do my not Crystal Frog voice. She says, use different equipment for tracking and nose work to create clear context cues. Establish consistent verbal and visual cues for each activity. For example, use different commands or hand signals for tracking and nose work, different equipment. This is Robin's opinion. Also use different equipment. That helps a lot. Okay, back, back to Crystal. Handlers should be aware of the dog's body language and behavior to identify when the dog may be confused or unsure. Consistent practice is essential for maintaining the dog's proficiency in both. Crystal is a huge fan of tracking. It has kept our sanity for dogs rehabilitating after injury and giving an excellent brain activity that will wear them out way more than hours of exercise. IGP tracking is a joy. It's problem solving and figuring out how to create obedience style footsteps to footstep sniffing and straight down with an article between the feet, article indications with different materials. Then doing search and rescue, there's a total different picture and different challenges. Her favorite harness is a botcher harness, which we'll link to in the show notes. Her favorite harness for IDP tracking, and she uses a collar only for star. And so think about what Stacy just said about all of the different odor sports that she was doing. And what Crystal is talking about and what I just read, we're talking about context setting cues. And I think people really, really underestimate the power that context setting cues have. Because every single one of you know that when you show up to the training place that you usually train your dogs, get all excited. But you could drive someplace new and you could ask them to go search and they look at you like you have totally, absolutely asked them to do something totally outside of their comfort zone. They don't get it. Dogs do not absolutely generalize well. And so that's why it's so important to do all of these things in so many different contexts. And those cues actually end up helping you set up. We're doing tracking now. We're doing IGP tracking. You're looking at a big field. You are in a botcher harness. You are have a big, huge long line on. For Crystal doing an area search, her cue is to put in a push position, which is the dog pushes in between her legs. For searching beside her, it's hand on the chest, sit and tap with the dog standing or sitting right beside her. For buried, I have a lay down and I tap the ground. Keep your nose down. So there's all of these different different things that you can do to set those context setting cues. So different context. Yeah, it is. It is. Because I don't have enough to do. I'm going to start tracking with my my girls pretty soon. I got a harness. I got a harness. I have a line. And uh, yeah, I'm like, all right, let's do that thing too. So <laughs> why not? It'll be why fun. Not? Why not? I, no, I enjoy it. I, I put it... I mean, it's just basic title. I just put a TD on, 
on Judd a long time ago. And I'm like, yeah, I'd like to do that again. Why not? Yeah. Do that again. So I think the next minimize tracking when training nose work alone. Slingshot. I don't know what that means. Anyone? I think they're talking it. I don't know what the slingshot. Oh, I think they're maybe slingshotting the a tin to see that they want to. I don't know. All I want to say, I want to mention this thing about the tracking when the dogs are searching with nose work. Because honestly, dogs will track in a trial. Absolutely. I've seen it. I've seen when, and I'm not going to discourage it either because it gives the dog an advantage. You know, the dogs are searching after all the other dogs, right? And I think it's it's not realistic to think that they're only out there just searching for target odor because they're going to use all of the information that they have available to them because it it it's, it helps them to be successful. I have seen Brava be in a situation... Brava does this probably more than my other dogs, although I started to see it sometimes with the other dogs, where when she gets a little confused, I've seen her all of a sudden drop her nose to the ground and start ground scenting. And what she's actually, I think, looking for, it seems to look for like, like if you hang out in an area or a dog hangs out in an area, they can tell there's like a scent pad, right? She's done that behavior, then all of a sudden lifted her head and be like, I know where I'm going. And then she'll go and she'll, she'll source a hide. And based on what I know about airflow, there is zero possibility of that essential oil being on the ground in that spot that the only thing that she could be doing is tracking either dogs and or handlers ahead of her. And I actually think it's fine. I think it's fine. Now, if you're trying, if you're worried that your dog is out there and they are tracking instead of searching when you train alone, that's a different situation. Well, then you need to walk around your search area. But honestly, I think when we start thinking about our scent cones get pretty big. And I really, I think a lot of dogs are not going to prioritize a tracking over, over those big scent cones. Right. And Crystal has a good point. She said, you remember you have clean and dirty search areas. Yeah. So place your hide and walk around and touch lots of places. And you can also don't drop your hide first, but keep it contained so you're not crop dusting your search area. Yeah. Walk around, then place your hide. Yeah. So there's, I was just out setting up a cadaver dog test today and we apprentice on how to best set up cadaver dog searches. And I'll admit, I drive my UTV around to set up a lot of it. And so I go for joy rides around my two acre yeah. area and I just drive all over the place and I get out and I randomly walk around. Yeah, with the stuff, not with the stuff, but I just get out and walk, walk around because I have to be able to show yeah. that the dog's just not tracking me in. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But as far as like in a trial, like I'm, <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with it personally. No. I think it's actually a, a, uh, a yeah, actually a benefit. Right. Okay. Next question. Oh, this is a good one for you. Yep. Can your hunt test dog also be trained and certified in search and rescue or is that a conflict of interest? So I know people with certified search dogs, Yep. not me at this moment because I'm not that proficient yet, who have also titled their dogs yep. in hunt test. Oh, yeah. Now, yep. 
right? Let's be, we just got done talking about context. Yeah. In one of the previous questions. So we're talking about equipment context, cue context, because when I go stand on the line with my dog, they're at a sit, I'm standing there pretty much like a toothpick. And God, I wish I looked like a toothpick, but so I'm standing there like a steak and (laughs) (laughs) sending my dog out to go retrieve. Now, here's the difference between if you're talking hunt test field trial type of thing, the dogs aren't actually hunting for anything. That just happens to be what they're called. They're actually watching where the birds fall and they should be marking them with their eyeballs and running out there with to where the bird fell, retrieving them and bringing them back with now and retrieving the bird. Now that is retrievers though. What about spaniels? So that you have spaniels, you have different types. That's pointer upland hunting type of things. I personally don't know anybody who does upland hunting with their search and rescue dog. But yeah. there's also a whole bunch of context setting cues with that. I think so. I mean, the dog has to know what... I mean, they, they know what job they're out there for. There's... I think it goes to really everything you're doing. The dog knows the context. It does. But we have a lot of pheasants here in Iowa. And yeah. I have dog... I had a dog that would naturally just retrieve a live pheasant out of the field for me. I didn't have to train her how to do it. Oh, nice. And yeah... <laughs> Hmm. (laughs) So the big problem is the fact that when you get into those situations, will those dogs with the natural, oh, I want to go be birdie. Yeah. Will that override the desire to hunt? So if you're talking upland hunting, some of those sorts of things, but if you're talking field trial hunt test stuff, you're okay. And also like Crystal said, it makes you a better trainer. And it actually does give, I'll tell you what, doing some of the bird dog stuff has really sharpened sharpened up the left and right heel position. It's sharpened up recall stuff. Plus it gives us stuff to train when the weather's crappy. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. How do we move through the shoulds and should nots and decide what's best for ourselves and our dogs' overall training and well-being? So much information overload. That is a big question. Huge. Yeah, this comes down to this is hard because you have to, in order to be able to kind of siphon through the shoulds and should nots, I think you have to have a conceptual framework of kind of what you're trying to achieve. And you really kind of have to have an idea of what philosophies you have. And if you're if you're newer in a sport or activity, that can be a little bit tough. What I would say is that I get worried when people say never. I'm more worried about the words never and always than should and should not. Because should and should not, there's always some wiggle room. It's always For me, it's always it depends anyway. It's always it depends. But (laughs) I say always. But the word always and never, those are my hot buttons there that that make me a little worried. Yeah. And there's should and should not. There's also can you versus should you. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the ones that we, yeah, we get into a lot. And so I'm going to read Crystal's little statement because 
as usual, she has really good insight <laughs> here. Yes. So this is Crystal. The abundance of information and advice related to dog training overwhelms me. I'm so thankful for a training tribe. Keep in mind, every dog is unique with different temperaments, energy levels, and learning styles. Take the time to get help to understand your dog's specific needs, preferences, and limitations. This is a foundation of effective training. Make sure you have clear and achievable training goals for you and your dog. What behaviors or skills do you want or need to teach or improve? Having specific objectives helps you focus your training efforts. The first thing is to know what you need to teach. For sports, know your rules and where your points are. For detection, know the laws and your responsibilities and what skills your dog needs. Then teach those skills. Attend dog training classes or workshops led by experienced trainers. Not all trainers or coaches are created equal. Research and find out who you are going to learn from. Free is great, but it isn't really. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to laugh <laughs> at that one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And okay, so this is Robin's little tangent going off of Crystal's. Uh, yeah. Sometimes you get what you pay for. Oh, yeah. You, when you, it's free. A lot of times you get what you pay for. And sometimes you right. pay a lot. Like you might find like somebody has a big name. It doesn't actually mean that that's associated with how good they are. So I just want to... Correct. And make sure that you're appropriately watching audit things. People, I know people get really weird about, oh my God, I don't get to work my dog. Go audit. You learn a lot when you don't have to worry about your dog. So, okay. Back on to Crystal's little script. (laughs) (laughs) This is Crystal again. Okay. Um, Recognize that there is no single training method that works for every dog. Be open to adapting your training approach based on your dog's need and responses. Consistency in training methods and expectations is crucial. Avoid constantly changing your approach as it can confuse the dog and Robin says, and the human. Yeah, agreed. Be patient and understanding. Training takes time and dogs may not learn at the same pace. Bingo. You know your dog best. Trust your instincts and observations about your dog's behavior and well-being. If something doesn't feel right, don't hesitate to make adjustments. And Crystal is spot on. Yes, agreed. Agreed. About all of this. And it's interesting because I've had a couple of people ask me, they're like, well, aren't progression plans training methods? And my response is, they are. But they're not because train progression plans are actually a set of behaviors that you're leading your dog to get to the same spot as all the rest of the dogs that you have. Yeah. Yeah. My dogs are barking. Sorry, you guys, if you're hearing barking, my dogs are barking at a donkey. It's, mm-hmm. You know what? This is not <laughs> ideal. Tonight, we're not a bad ideal. No. But you know what? So, we're here. We showed up. We're doing our little podcast thing and we're going to record this out to you guys. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this is perfect. There's, this couldn't be any better. I mean, my fingers are like, I'm having a typing cramp. <laughs> so like I'm having a typing cramp. I'm like, I'm going to need a drink. God, yeah. We're doing it, man. We're we doing are. it. <laughs> well, and because I can tell you guys, I've had the black the black girls are getting ready to turn two. Yeah. 
next month. So I've had four puppies in the last year, two years, that I've trained to do the same set of behaviors. Mm -hmm. They've all ran through the same exact progression plans, but each one of them has gotten there in a different fashion because they all learn differently. Yes. And so I think it's, it's just that we have to decide. I'm delving into other worlds of training other things. And I have to decide what is a should and a should not for me. Right. Right. And how I want to train and how I want to treat my dog. Right. And Crystal's exactly right. Look at the skills that you need to train in the dogs and then just go train those. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. So, okay. The next one is, is there any trainers that you know that do a paid internship? Uh, No idea. I know that typically, so when you're thinking of a paid internship, there's a difference between being paid kennel help, right? And an internship, typically in internships, you're getting paid in knowledge as well. And you're also providing work. I typically will provide lodging for any interns that I have. And typical interns end up sticking around anywhere from eight week, eight to 16 weeks. And that's typically what they can afford to do. So, Let's okay. See. You guys talk about leaving your dogs in the cars or trucks when you're at seminars. Do you leave the vehicles running the whole time or do you have other systems to keep the dogs cool or heated? I use shade cloths. I really try to avoid leaving my car running or closed. I think it's important for the dogs to kind of acclimate a little bit. It's really hard for them to go from like an air-conditioned vehicle and then hop out and do a search in an area that's not air-conditioned. That's actually kind of hard on them. Shade cloths are your friend. I just open up all the windows and doors. I hang out all the shade cloths and I have fans running. So I use Ryobi fans and I just you know change out the batteries. That's all I do. I literally... I have a shade cloth that covers my entire van yep. as well. We're also shade-seeking creatures. I mean, literally, it's like fist fight to see who gets to park in the shade. Right, right. I will typically park so that when I pop my tailgate on my minivan, the breeze is blowing in the back end of my van. I also have fans. I have some awesome fans Mm -hmm. by Relentless Bird Dogs. We will give a shout out to Ryan. Yeah, I'm actually really interested in those yeah Yeah. i'll put a link to his web we'll put a link in the show notes yeah because he has these awesome fans that he can he makes it so that they they can run on milwaukee batteries ryobi batteries ryobi batteries that then also can plug into your car he can do all sorts of little options he also will help you customize them because he's got some that fit rufflands gunners dakotas I don't know. And I have my custom ones that he sent me stuff for. So we do a lot of fans. And keep in mind, you guys, it is really, like Stacey said, it's really important that your dogs are at least somewhat acclimated and can get out and search in whatever weather you're having. I mean, my dogs are kenneled in such a way that they are acclimated. One thing I do want to say here, I have to kind of put this out there. If you go to a trial, sometimes you're packed in really tightly. And occasionally you get somebody that starts to run their vehicle. That's actually an issue because now that exhaust and the heat coming off of that vehicle is now piping, not only piping into your neighbor's vehicle, it's also heating up their vehicle. 
So I've been at a trial where when one person starts their vehicle up, everybody has to run their vehicles. You don't have an option at that point because it's just not it's just not healthy for your dog. And especially if we're talking, you know, a 90 degree day, now you're sitting next to a vehicle that's now emanating all this heat. Now instead of that vehicle being subjected to 90 degrees, now it's being subjected to probably 115. So and I don't have actual numbers for that, but that gets to the point where I'm actually very... I try to keep my... Um, when I trial, I don't like to run my vehicle, partially because air conditioners can fail. And I don't want to have everything closed up and not know about it and have the AC fail and my dogs roast in, in the vehicle. That's actually very dangerous and it has happened. So I'm very... I don't know if people, people might think I'm rude if I say, look, are you planning on running your vehicle? And if so, can you move? <laughs> and I will... I'll be pretty blunt about that because it's it's really poor practice to run your vehicle close to another vehicle that where that handler does not want to run their vehicle. So that, that's right. And keep in mind, I know I work with a lot of law enforcement that it's actually in their policies that they have to run their cars. Yeah, yeah. That's a totally different. That's thing. different. So, that's different. And they're they've got. Car monitors, and yes, the car yeah. monitors fail, but you, I mean, when you're at training with these guys, they're constantly out there checking on their yeah. dogs. And yeah. we're keeping track of dogs for everybody. So, yeah. yep. okay, last question, I think, for yep. right now. You, we've recently been talking about getting outside your box. And obviously, we don't realize is what boxes we're in. What's been bugging this person lately is what is realistic HR hides? What do HR human remains handlers usually end up boxing themselves into and what can I do to get out of it to make different hides for my dog? A, HR handlers really seem to think that they have to elevate freaking everything. We successfully proved that even when you hang things, it drips. Ooh, okay. And we, we did that over Labor Day. Not only does it drip, but then things steal your hides. Mm. And so then you have a huge giant scent pool. So I think for HR handlers, for you to break out of the what you typically do is don't think that you have to do high hides and make sure you are aging your hides appropriately and think like a bad guy. Hmm. So, or a raccoon that stole your hide and only left an empty suet cage because yeah. not like that didn't happen. Right. So <laughs> knows where getting out of your box, but I like to think about it is pretend you're a five year old. Where would you put the hide? Yeah, I love that one. Or have a five year old actually place your hide and tell them that if you can't find it, you're going to pay them five bucks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That can definitely. So, be. and it's not only comes down to setting hides, it comes down to thinking about the fact that, oh my God, my dog has to place hug. Oh my gosh, my dog has to hold on to its toy. Right. And some of that, no, this is how we teach to sit. This is how we, we have to use runaways are those sorts of things. So Crystal is doing a really good job in the background of trying to keep us on task. And she wanted to remind us that Ask a Stupid Question Day was created by a collection of teachers. Hmm. And Crystal thought of this who wanted to make sure children feel encouraged to ask more questions in the classroom. Aside from getting the answer to something, there are a number of other benefits that you will make the most of if you start to ask more questions. 
We learn about life by answering questions. This is something that has been proven scientifically. When you ask why and start observing and trying different things, you learn about the world. The more questions you ask, the better answers you get. Questioning also makes you open. You form new patterns in the brain and you enrich your knowledge and outlook on life. Plus, asking the right questions can make you happy and wiser too. There is always something new to learn, right? Thank you so much for asking great questions and listening to Crystal's Frog Voice and Robin script reading my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I think we have time, ladies, mm-hmm. for really brief takeaways. Okay. So who wants to go first? Oh, I'll go first because oh, that was Crystal's takeaway. Okay. Well, that, that, that was, was Crystal's takeaway. Okay. That was easy. Peter. I know, right? She had you do her takeaway. My takeaway is just that there really is no stupid question, right? And just this was a great discussion. There, I there was zero stupidity in these questions, and I just really enjoyed getting stuff from from our listeners and being able to speak about that. And and here we are, even though we've got internet and frog voice problems, we're still here. And barking dogs in the background that is the little mini donkey who is not where he's supposed to. <laughs> and my takeaway is that I'm really excited our listeners feel comfortable and safe enough to post these type of questions on our wall or send them to us. Because trust me, if you've had this question or this concern, somebody else has had it too. They just didn't know to ask the question. Mm-hmm. And All three of us very, very much believe in creating a safe learning environment because only when you feel safe can you learn. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Um, Next week, we have Reflections. And um, Stacey, I think you have some classes enrollment that just came open, didn't you? I do. I do. I do. I've got, I've got, thank you for mentioning that. I have uh, three classes starting on October 1st. And by the time this airs, Enrollment will be open. So I've got introduction to the elements, which is basically just getting your basic foundation. And once you figured out how to get your dog on odor, you need this class if you're just getting your dog on odor, just so you don't make mistakes later. Or you don't make those mistakes later, you'll probably make others because that's what we do. I've got a class on that. And I've got a class on NW2 and NW3, just really just kind of getting those those types of skills and, and really kind of especially with the, the challenges with coming with those levels. And then the last one is a setups class, which is six weeks of setups. So it's just example setups and I've got ways to modify the challenges up or down. So would love to have you guys sign up and join me. So the link for that will be in the show notes. And thanks everybody for tuning in. And if you do have more stupid questions, go ahead and actually put them on the thread and we'll try and answer them. And as always, go train. Canine Detection Collaborative! We appreciate the time you spend with us. If you liked this episode, not only should you follow us so you don't miss the next one, but please also rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. For info on collaborating with us, go to caninedetectioncollaborative.com. That's K-9-detectioncollaborative.com, where you can find our socials and pick up our latest monthly freebie. Join us again to talk training in the next episode.